From the Vault, a true crime podcast is a production of JPF Productions and Bebo Studios. All opinions stated are those of the podcast and its hosts and are not to be considered factual. Any facts related to today's case has been backed up by resources provided in the description for the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hello listeners, Jason Futch here, and I want to bring to everyone's attention a very cool true crime podcast that's out there, Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. It is hosted by sister-in-laws Nat and Ash as they share cold cases from their home state of Vermont. But don't let that fool you because they also talk about cases from across the United States and around the world. As a matter of fact, I was just recently a guest on their podcast as me and my colleagues from the Fenley Creek Jane Doe Task Force discussed the case of Fenley Creek Jane Doe and her unborn child that was buried in the hills of Eastern Oregon in the late 1970s. Check them out. They are awesome. You can listen to them wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also find them on Facebook and Twitter. Just type in Crime Time Nerds and they pop up right there. So go ahead, check them out. Really cool podcast, and I highly encourage everyone to listen. And welcome to another episode of From the Vault, right here on Anchor FM and wherever you can find your favorite podcast. I'm Jason Futch, and alongside with me is my partner in crime, Nick Wagler. How are you? Doing well as always. Hopefully down over in uh, Mississippi you're not boiling in your, your truck there. Oh man, it's a little warm, but thankfully I got a, I got a fan running and everything, so I'm cool for the moment. But temps should be going down here soon, and we got a little bit of rain coming, so no worries on that. But uh, I think the rain will actually fit in for this topic we're going to be talking about today uh, as we delve into the story of Reet Jervetson, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it gives, you know, a sinister tone to the story, and this was definitely a very sinister murder. And, you know, it's been raining all day where I'm at, so I guess uh, the situation is fitting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Reed's story is a very complicated one because we're talking about a young lady who immigrated to the United States in the late 60s and start of a new life, only to be cut down very shortly after she went over to the United States. So we're going to be digging into that a little bit and also talking about some of the commonalities amongst other victims briefly as well. And we're going to talk about the case in general because before she was identified, for the longest time she was a Jane Doe. She was known as Jane Doe number 59. Before we do start talking about Reet's case, I want to remind everybody that Reet's case can be found on crimewatchers.net in pursuit of the missing, the unidentified, and justice. 
You can create a free account today over at Crime Watchers, and you can join in on the discussion about REIT and other cases that we've covered in the past as well. So go ahead, sign up for a free account, and talk about the case. So REIT Sylvia Gervetson's story begins on September 30th, 1950, where she is born in Sweden. Born into an Estonian family that would relocate to Montreal, Quebec, Canada in 1951. She was the youngest of three children, raised in a very strict religious household. She was described as a rebellious, independent, and vibrant person. And she was also known to dabble in a little bit of too much fun, to a point where she had run away from home at least once in her mid-teens. And then, sometime after she turned 18 years old, she relocated to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Now, growing up, Reet had dreams of moving to California, possibly with the hopes of making it big, like any young person who grew up around this time. Now, Nick, did you ever have dreams of just leaving Wisconsin? Absolutely. You know, when I was younger, I always wanted to be an actor or a singer. And, you know, part of that still exists within me, not as strongly as it was, you know, 15 years ago. But I think it's a very common dream. And if it's something that remains that prominent in your mind when you're a young adult, it's definitely something that would motivate a lot of people to relocate from however far away they are to a place like Hollywood, California, where they could get a role and get noticed and become a superstar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I also had this dream of one day moving to California myself when I was very young because uh, back then I always wanted to find a way to get out of Florida because I knew there was life out there somewhere and I felt like I wasn't going to make it being stuck in North Florida in a little tiny town about half an hour south of the Georgia state border. I remember reading a book by Jay Leno. For those of you who know, he used to host The Tonight Show on NBC. And he had a book called Leading With My Chin. And he talked about his struggles as a comedian, you know, coming up in the 1960s and 70s, trying to make it big in Los Angeles. He had moved from his town in Massachusetts, and he was doing the local nightclub scene and stuff like that. But at the same time, he was also living in his car. He was living in alleyways. I mean, he was basically struggling to make ends meet until, well, I guess he met the right people. And then before you know it, he's making tons of money. He owns a huge car collection. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, Nick, but it is huge. And on top of that, he gets to ride in these cool-ass cars with Joe Biden. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, he's definitely somebody who got lucky. And that, you know, that whole... That reminds me, too, of how, you know, I just remember watching movies like Avatar or like the television show Orange is the New Black. You know, a lot of those actors were on the brink of quitting and just throwing in the towel. They were running out of money. They were frustrated. And then they get called back after the audition and their life changed. They got lucky. And a lot of people aren't that fortunate. Oh, absolutely. Since the time of, you know, John Marshall discovering gold at Sutter's Mill, California had been the mecca for anyone looking for a quick buck or a fast start in the entertainment industry. And, you know, like you said, some hit it big and some it either took a while or it never came. And unfortunately for Reet Gervetson, her dreams of going to California would come at a deadly price. 
In the fall of 1969, Reet booked a flight to Los Angeles, moving in with a man named Jean, who has also been identified as her boyfriend. Some report that he also could have gone by John. The last time that Reet's family and friends heard from her was two weeks before she met her fate. She had written brief postcards to both her parents and close friends. She seemed satisfied with her life in California and everything that came with it. She was happy to be there. She seemed to be very much enjoying her stay there. But the big question here, Nick, is what in the hell went wrong that would ultimately end up with what we're about to talk about next? You know, it's been it's been over half a century now. The possibilities could be limitless. It could have been a domestic situation. It could have been her simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do recall that she was eventually planning to meet with a relative living in Arizona, but, you know, she never made it there. Right. And it could have been a long distance to get into contact with him. It could have simply been, yeah... <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. the possibilities as far as to what could have gone wrong or what unfortunate circumstances came to be. There are very many possibilities, and this is something that we might never know just because of you know, how long this is, how long ago this happened. But, you know, at the same time, they're solving all sorts of cases left and right that are between 40 and 70 years old. You never know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, technology has come a long way, but as for what happened prior to the time she was discovered, I don't think will get a definite answer unless something comes back saying, well, we had an eyewitness who still recounts Reet's last moments on this earth. We might have some evidence to back that up. And unfortunately, LAPD does not have that DNA of a suspect in this case. I mean, as far as I know, they don't. Yeah, I have actually, as I've, you know, this is actually something I am going to bring up later on too, is that they were lucky enough to get some blood evidence that was somehow still left in her case file, but there was nothing left of a suspect. There were no fingernail scrapings. There is no forensic evidence as to who took her life. Exactly, and that's what makes this case very frustrating for detectives because at this point we're talking, yeah, a very long time, over 50 years. And basically at this point, it's just kind of like the boy in the box mystery. All we have is statements from possible witnesses, but we don't have anything to back up those statements other than, you know, how this individual may have gotten there, but we don't know who they are. Just because you saw somebody drop a body off, how does that help in the identification process? If there's no DNA, if there's nothing, no fingerprints, no dental on them, I can only assume that the LAPD stress level, even during the Jane Doe investigation, was probably pretty high to a point where obviously we see they've probably shelved this case for a number of years before the big break so to speak so i remember i remember watching you know a documentary it was very well done that's available on youtube and it was a miracle that the investigator walking into that area looked through her file and found that misplaced blood-stained article of clothing that should have been destroyed along with her body back in 1970 
Yeah, because you know, because you have to remember too, is that cases like this after a certain period of time, not only is the body cremated, but sometimes the evidence is also court ordered to be destroyed. So thankfully, there was something to work with in Reed's case. You know, I know, especially looking through some of the old cases in uh, California, especially with um, unidentified people, you know, you look at some of the, you come across these NamUs profiles, there's no photos, there's no attempt at a reconstruction, there's not even a mortuary photograph because they were too deteriorated to have their fingerprints found or it's to the point where you know you have that sinking feeling like this case could never be solved because the body's already been destroyed and there were already no dental or dna records taken because their body wasn't in the proper condition because of the elements or additional circumstances and i will even admit too that you know i remember coming across the case file of reet who was a young woman who was unidentified being found in 1969 and i remember looking at her case file that's listed on NamUs and then on the Doe Network. And I still remember, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, this isn't going to get solved. It's so old. At the time, I think I was probably about 18 or 19. I kind of had an apathetic feeling towards old cases at the very beginning of my research into right. this topic. Yeah, and, but, yeah. And, I'm w- and I'm with you on that, too, because one of my first cases was a very old case. Like, one of the first cases I researched, and that was uh, Forrest Doe. His remains had been found in 1978. And I've actually been following it since you know since i found out about this case when i was probably i think 13 years old i believe i was 13 when i first heard about it but at the time i only had glimpsed at it and looked into it but it wasn't until i got a little older and got into criminal justice studies that i actually looked into it you know going back to those postcards that reet sent out it wouldn't be too long after that that a teenager would be hiking up Mulholland Drive and come across something very awful. A young man named Trevor Santochi was hiking hilly Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles, California to go birdwatching. And as he approached an embankment, he chose to look over the drop to see if he could see anything interesting. And that he did. He made out the body of a woman lying in a dense, bushy area of the embankment fully clothed. It appeared that a tree branch had blocked her from rolling completely down the hill, which was roughly 700 feet down, or for our Canadian listeners, 213 meters. Her exact position was about 15 feet down. He went home and told his stepfather, Dr. Murray Abelwitz, about the gruesome discovery. And in turn, Dr. Abelwitz contacted the Los Angeles Police Department, and an hour later, Sergeant Rick Lundgren would arrive at the scene. Now, considering how deep the body was in the embankment and how she was positioned, he waited to act until more officers could arrive at the scene, not only for his personal safety, but to also improve the recoverability of her body. And when they did, it took officers a while before they could reach it. And when they did, they confirmed that the victim was a young woman. Rigor mortis was just leaving her head, face, and neck areas, and her eyes were wide open. Based on the on-scene observation, the woman had likely been dead no more than 48 hours prior to the discovery. So, we're talking a little bit since she'd been sitting there. I'm amazed that there had been no animal predation 
on her body at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of depends on the surroundings. And I think Reet was very lucky that her body was found relatively soon after she had died and that she hadn't rolled all the way down that uh, embankment. You know, as we've been going over this podcast and our notes and research, you know, this reminded me a lot of the case of Michelle Wallace, who disappeared in Colorado. And it was many, many years after she died that her remains were eventually recovered. Her family was still holding on to that hope she could have been still alive when she wasn't. I think for the dignity of the family, too, you know, it's yeah, it's it's very interesting because as we're talking about, you know, that she was identifiable and then in this one she'd only been out for less than forty eight hours. It's kinda it's kind of like one of those situations where you could say, Well, she's damn lucky to have been found before a falcon was able to find her or something like that because when and this was something that I kind of learned uh, by watching some of the videos of the body farm is that when animals start to attack their prey, case in point a dead body, there's a lot of picking, there's a lot of clawing, there's a lot of whatever and it makes the body move and shift in ways that you never thought a body could shift and luckily with Reed's situation yeah had a bird a big bird had come at her i would guarantee you that she would have finished that roll down the hill you know in in the end the fact that she was recognizable is what ultimately resulted in her identification yeah and we know, of course, it was later confirmed by DNA, but yeah, she but wasn't it, she wasn't in the system before that that match was right, looked into. Right, so. and and you know, thankfully, yeah, she was somewhat recognizable. But unfortunately, to be a little blunt about it, sometimes a face isn't the only thing that helps aid in an identification process. And honestly. Mm-hmm. In this case, it did not help until much later in this investigation, as we'll cover. But yeah, going back to how her body was positioned on the hill, it was positioned at a 45-degree angle, which made for that recovery very tricky, as we've emphasized. One wrong move could have made the body continue that path toward the bottom of the embankment. But thankfully, with more hands and a skilled crime scene unit, the body was able to be carried up the hill and to the road where she was transported to the coroner's office. When she was observed by the county coroner, it appeared that whoever killed her had overdone it, simply. She had been stabbed over 150 times, and obviously that's an apparent sign of overkill. And detectives initially thought that the wounds to her throat consisted of a large single wound until the county coroner looked at it the next morning, and it was only then that he would observe a lot of the puncture wounds on her throat. Imagine that, to be stabbed that many times. And as we find out, she was likely stabbed with a pen knife. You know, that had to be the most god-awful, painful murder ever. And to top it off, the brutality was just insane. Especially come to think of the fact that investigators believed that she had a big, gaping wound, probably Nicole Simpson style, just gashing out of her. I mean, that's just awful, wouldn't you say, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously they would have been disturbed by, you know, the body of a young woman who has defensive wounds. I mean, I've seen partial images of her hands are bloodied that were at the crime scene. And 
I honestly, it's just hard to imagine, you know, being in that position where you're being attacked and you know you're going to die. And I just hope that for her it was over long before most of the wounds were inflicted because it yeah. it's a horrible, horrible way to go. I mean, I definitely feel like I would prefer an instantaneous death myself if... I ended up getting in the wrong place at the wrong time or was otherwise, you know, targeted. You know, it's... Yeah, you you could only hope that the pen knife hit the right artery and it was over much more quickly than this apparent case of overkill because, I mean, 150 times. I mean, you really have to hate somebody in order to be killed like that. I mean, I don't know. This is just an awful, awful, awful way to go. I think you definitely agree that this was a crime of passion because of how much rage this person had, you know. Um, right. I do, from other cases of overkill, I have read that at least some of these victims are lucky enough to have died long before most of the, the stab wounds or trauma is inflicted. But still, it's really, really hard to just imagine being stabbed that many times however many she was conscious for. Sure, and it's crazy because, you know, we talk about this case, and in our last episode together, we talked about septic tank Sam and how he Mm -hmm. was murdered. There's just so many ways that you could torture and kill somebody, and it's just awful what us as human beings are doing to each other. And to look at these two cases, these, these cases are a prime example of just how ruthless some people are yeah absolutely as i just stated a second ago you know we find out that she was likely stabbed with a pen knife and for those of you who don't know what a pen knife is it's basically what it says it is it's a knife that could probably fit in a ballpoint pen or you know something like that really tiny too and just imagine that going into you over 150 times i mean that's just very shocking and i and i hate to emphasize this because it's brutal i'll just put it that way it's a brutal way to go and we just want everyone to understand that this is just not right like this was fucking brutal and there's no sugar coating it. There's no way to whitewash it or go around it. Whoever killed her obviously had some reason to kill her. Although there really is no reason to be killing anybody. Unless, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, you're a child molester or a child rapist. But anyways, besides the point, I wanted to say that even though we've established how she was killed, we also see that there's a possibility that the killer had no financial gain whatsoever by murdering this woman because when we see what was found on her she's got her ring she was found with wearing two rings and these were rings that could probably you know sell in a pawn shop but they were still on her finger when they were found and so it's a possibility that the motive was not financial gain because at the same time we also have to understand that her purse was not found they never found a wallet or a purse or anything so uh we can't say for sure that well someone gained from this but i don't see what they would gain from an estonian canadian migrant who just moved to the united states and maybe didn't even have a job at the time who knows yeah and i i believe at least one of the rings had it was either i don't exactly remember which stone it was but it was it was either a precious or semi-precious stone that she was given to her by i believe it was her father it could have it could have sold for a, a reasonable price i feel i do agree that financial motivation might not have been a factor because 
she still has these rings on her hand after this guy has brutally murdered her and then driven her to this location. He had the time to remove those. Right. And ultimately, just because of the level of violence, it definitely shows that even if she did have some money in her purse that has never been found, that wasn't the first priority. I think the offender's primary goal was to take her life. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And I think that was the main motive here, because especially if we're going to be talking about robbery as a motive, there's really no necessary signs to indicate that in this case. And this is only theory. This is only my opinion here. I'm not an investigator or a professional, but this is just, you know, based on what I'm seeing here. She's got valuable rings on her fingers, and she's still got her clothes on her, so there's that. I mean, it doesn't seem like the killer had anything to gain from this other than twisted pleasure, if you will, because, as we mentioned, if he killed her, he had a reason to. It's really unfortunate. And, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, though. So, we have to consider a lot of factors here especially with a situation like this i will kind of mention something else here nick the investigators believe that she had also been killed at another location and transported to the scene in an upward position likely in the seat of a vehicle and disposer at night so basically possibly being propped up in the back seat of someone's car and the killer likely intended for her body to actually go all the way down the hill, down the bottom of the ravine, you know, and boom, his problem's been solved. Nobody's going to be found all the way down there unless you're really hiking down there and looking for something. Or in modern day, you know, a helicopter going over it might happen to see a dead body lying there in the ravine. But nonetheless, it would have been very possible that his intention was definitely to get that body down the hill to where no one would be able to find this body. And then we were talking about animal predation a few minutes ago. This would be a perfect opportunity for the hawks and the the vultures and vultures and buzzards come out and pick at her and whatever else roams down in those California valleys. Then at that point, she'll go from being possibly identified to Mount Baldy John Doe style unidentified, where he's got, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, no possible chance of being identified. I do recall that case too, and there's very limited information that I've found on the case. I mean, I do, this does show signs of potentially being a homicide. I mean, there, I, I don't know how much you know about it. Like, I've always figured it was a murder just based on um, oh, the yeah, partial absolutely. remains. Yeah, I, no. I always had a suspicion that Mount Baldy John Doe was a possible craft victim. Yeah, that's very possible too. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, the killer didn't get what he wants, obviously, because this teenage boy finds her body not too far down the cliff. And yeah, there's that. And then a few days later, on the 21st, detectives find a pair of Liberty brand glasses belonging to a nearsighted person. Now, I'm going to clarify this with our listeners here. It's still undetermined if these glasses belong to someone with knowledge of the murder. But it was interesting considering they were found within 50 feet of where the woman was found. So it, it's coincidental, but I don't think it's anything to necessarily get hopes on because honestly anything can be found down a hill 
like trash cans, like soda cans and stuff like that. I mean, sometimes, you know, glasses might wander somewhere. It is what it is, so it's not going to be usable. It's not going to be what they call sufficient evidence in a case like this. Yeah, I know if they did, in fact, belong to the individual who disposed of her body, that does, you know, indicate that he was in a rush, at least to some degree, to get rid of her. At the same time, with the glasses, if they even still exist at this point, um, if they weren't destroyed after however many years, there's still not a whole lot you could get from them. Any fingerprint information that could be lifted would be partial or impossible to recover at this point. And at the same time, too, you know, prescription information is really only useful unless it can be compared to an existing file. A lot of uh, practices do diligently retain their records for decades, but at the same time there are many that do not a lot of doctors and that was one thing we found out quickly in the Finley Creek Jane Doe case that I was researching is that you can call a lot of doctors and ask them if they have records from 78 or even sooner some will say yes but they're locked up somewhere else off property or they'll say well after 10 years we just go ahead and get rid of them because they're not of any use to us so yeah so it's really good that some law that some practices will keep them but a lot of them also won't which is well i understand but it might be nice to like maybe at least keep a digital file somewhere in case mm -hmm. but anyways i do want to ask you about what you were able to find regarding similar homicides that happened in that area around the same time reet was found and our listeners would be very eager to hear some of this so go ahead and uh, share with us what you were able to find nick so I was able to do like a lot of research, kind of digging into, you know, similar crimes that had occurred in that area. The CBC that's in Canada, they did a lot of articles on Reed's case and they were really, really helpful. So I, I definitely would recommend our listeners to, to take a look at some of these articles that have been released by this, uh, this agency because they're very comprehensive. And one case to me, I think, which stuck out to me was the 1968 murder of seven year old Marina Habe. She was discovered on December 30th of 68. I have come across the possibility that she might have been seen with members of the Manson family prior to her death, which, you know, at this point, who knows? A lot of people do believe that Manson's followers could have had some form of involvement, but... Her murder is uh, officially a cold case. It's never been solved. Habe was the daughter of a writer and an actress. Her mother did have kind of a minor career in film. After she had been abducted from her own driveway, her body had been dumped along Mulholland Drive, and it was within close proximity to where Reed's body would be found the, the following year. I think what really stuck out to me as well is that Marina Habe had been stabbed numerous times, you know, it's definitely a case of overkill. One retired detective did talk to the CBC and he did state that there are similarities in their deaths and especially the location was very strong indications that their murders could have been related. I do have to also mention that the current investigator on Reet's case has been very cautious to connect 
these two murders and also the possibility of these two crimes being related it would be very hard to conclusively determine because you know there's no forensic evidence from an offender in either one of these obviously horrific murders and along with the fact that these were both two females in their late teens i mean of course reet was 19 she was an adult but they were close in age they both had light colored eyes and I guess one thing I've learned about considering victimology in cases is that for a serial offender, I'm not, just to make a side note, I'm not stating for sure there was a serial killer in the area. One thing that I have noticed is that when you look at victimology and what they have in common, if perhaps Reet was not killed in a domestic situation, the offender in question, if he exists, they all have a type. Sure. Well, a lot of them do, I should say. I guess not all of them. Sometimes... There are cases where serial killers or spree killers don't have a, a specific rule as to who they select. Right, um, they're, they're, they're non-discriminative, yeah. basically. Yeah, this kind of got the wheels in my head turning a little bit when I came across Marina's case because I could definitely see that they had similarities in resemblance and the fact that they were found so close together that the murders were less than a year apart. That, yeah, there could have been a possibility that they were... Yeah committed by the same person yeah um, i mean two young beautiful women who look very similar in looks yeah that fits pretty perfectly and what you would consider an mo or a part of someone's victimology and then you mm -hmm. consider reed's case once again a young good-looking woman who shared a similar type to these two women i mean yeah it goes hand in hand and if there was a serial killer uh, if well i will say this now i know we just mentioned him just a second ago if we're going to be talking about serial killers or spree killers whatever you want to call it this would be a perfect crime to tie to Charles Manson, if you think about it. Because if you look at some of the people who were involved in some of the heinous acts that were orchestrated by Charles Manson, like perfect example, Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins, if you want to think about it for a second, mm -hmm. beautiful young woman at the time of her arrest, beautiful young woman who actually, in my opinion, shared some similar features to... The three ladies we're talking about right now and just didn't happen to be murdered after Manson was done with her. Yeah, I think honestly you could consider these women possible victims of Charles Manson and that's something we might be touching up here in a little bit but mm -hmm. as you also mentioned too investigators have been treading lightly on dubbing Charles Manson as the person responsible for these deaths because it's easy to blame a serial killer for any kind of murder. I mean, especially, let's take a look at Henry Lee Lucas. He was supposedly responsible for thousands of murders that was pinned on him. Mm -hmm. But for Charles Manson, this I'm shocked that investigators did not say, as a matter of fact, Charles Manson is the killer in these cases. But I'm very glad that they used their heads... And didn't jump the gun like Texas investigators did with Lucas. And didn't immediately place blame on the Mansons. Although, it's rumor. 
rumor and innuendo, wouldn't you say? I'm a little more hesitant to consider Manson's involvement just because of some of the information that I'm going to talk about later, too. I guess I kind of sort of envisioned this potential repeat offender as maybe somebody who hasn't been caught yet, possibly. And I've previously, you know, mentioned how there are similarities between the Habe and the Gervetson murder, but there is something to me that does seem a little inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Marina Habe was kidnapped in her driveway as I mentioned before. She'd been spending the night out with her friends and her boyfriend. Um, She was home from being in college. I guess she was a student in uh, Hawaii, which I thought was interesting. Based on, um, you know, the the abduction that was witnessed, there were at least two people involved based on a voice that was heard and then a vehicle speeding away and believe the statement as it was said that start the car or something along the lines of that definitely shows that there's you know more than two people involved i believe that marina's murder was probably planned to some degree um whereas you know there's definitely the opportunity that reed's death could have been spur of the moment sure yeah so you know of course you know it's not an mo is not an exact unbreakable rule there have been many situations where some people have They've murdered someone else differently. They've altered their planning process or how they date their victim selection and that sort of... But And moving forward, just into uh, May of 1969, um, another young woman, her name was Rose Tashman. She'd been discarded along Mulholland Drive. It appeared that she had probably been abducted after her car was located along the Hollywood Freeway, which is near Mulholland Drive. And she was a young, pretty white woman, but at the same time, she had been strangled, which is a very different method of murder opposed to stabbing. She had been completely stripped of her clothing, unlike the previous two victims that we've we've mentioned. It was conclusively determined that she had been raped, and there were no signs of sexual assault in Reet's case, and there is a bit of a gray area with Marina just because of the fact that she was with her boyfriend that night as well. I don't want to dig too deeply into, uh, into a 17-year-old's personal life. Because of location, I think, you know, there is a possibility that Rose Tashman's case could be in a way, I could see some similarities, but at the same time, as we're mentioning here about Rose Tashman, compared to Reet and Marina, yeah, the MOs are a little bit different. It's a possibility, but then yet again, we could be talking about several other cases in the Los Angeles County area in 1969. You gotta remember, LA is a big place. There could have been a lot more cases very similar to Rose's out there, but it's kind of a guessing game at this point. You don't really necessarily know if it might be part of a bigger situation, but then at the same time, can you really rule it out though, honestly? Anything is possible, especially in 1968-69 LA. I know it was getting so good, but I am sorry. We are going to have to go ahead and take a break until next week when we will pick up on Reet Gervetson's case. In the meantime, go ahead and check out CBC's The Fifth Estate on YouTube, and it is a 20-minute documentary delving into Reet Gervetson's case. You would probably enjoy watching that as well as finishing our podcast next week so go ahead and go check it out and it'll give you an idea of what we will be discussing in the next half of this episode also we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the Sharon Tate murder 
And also we're going to talk a little bit more about Charles Manson and his possible involvement in Reed's case. Although, keep in mind, folks, it's only been speculation at this point, and Charles Manson has denied any involvement in this case. But we do go into it a little bit because his name was tossed around quite a bit in the investigation. And also, we're going to go a little more in-depth as to what happened when Reet was finally identified. All that and more on next week's episode of From the Vault. On behalf of Nick Wagler, I'm Jason Futch, and I want to thank you all for tuning in today. We'll see you on the next episode of From the Vault.